You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. If you have your Bibles, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And again, what I'd like to do, at least to start out this morning, is to start in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and read down through the end of the chapter, just so it's fresh on on our minds this morning, Uh, because I'm guessing you've slept since the last time you've uh, we were together, hopefully. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 14, this is what Paul writes. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Uh, We've been looking over the last uh, few times together at verses uh, 14 and 15, uh, where Paul is kind of giving his introductory statement to the prayer itself. Uh, The content of the prayer, which is actually what we're going to get into uh, next time. Uh, starts in the middle of verse 16. And uh, so what I want to do today is I want to look at the very beginning part of verse 16, uh, where Paul is kind of finishing up his overview or his basis for the prayer, his his posture, position of praying, uh, before he actually gets into the content itself. Uh, If you look at verse 16, uh, well, let's go back at verse 14. He, he again says, here I am, I'm bowing my knees before the Father, that, that I'm coming in this posture and this position of just uh, desperation, of, of intimacy, of just I'm pleading. I'm just, I'm, this is not just some casual prayer that Paul is praying. Uh, this is an aggressive kind of praying, that this, is a, uh, that this isn't just a, a willy-nilly, just kind of let's throw out a prayer kind of an idea. Uh, Paul says, I, I'm really focused, I'm really intent on that which I'm praying. Uh, he gets into verse 15, and he's talking about this idea that uh, I'm praying to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And um, we looked at the idea of name, uh, which is really significant in the passage. And he brings all that into verse 16, and he says, I'm praying to that Father that he would give you, and look at this line, according to the riches of his glory. That I'm praying to God that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, these things I'm about to ask in the content. And so as he gets into the end of verse 16, the idea of strengthened and the love stuff, uh, the rooted and grounded ideas, all that is the content of what he's praying, but the content of which he's praying is based on and according to, according to Paul, the riches of God's glory. Uh, that word, according to, it's the uh, preposition kata in the Greek, 
Uh, and it has this idea of according to a standard. Uh, it has this idea, it, it, maybe you could think of it as out of, but that's probably a bad idea because we're talking about the riches of God's glory. And it's not that he gives out of his riches. He gives according to his riches. I don't know if you see a difference. Uh, I have, uh, this is not true. This is, I'm making this up, okay? But let's say I had a million dollars in the bank. That is definitely a, not a true statement. If any of you want to help me make that a true statement, I would be, I'd be happy to talk with you. Uh, but but let, let's say there's a million dollars in the bank and I gave out of my wealth, out of my riches. Do you realize that means I'm cutting you a check and I'm giving it out of my supply, but now my supply goes lower. That's not this idea. This idea is according to his riches. And the idea is more like, ah, I wish I had a better illustration, but there's a million dollars in the bank and uh, I, give, I give you a million dollars, but somehow it doesn't decrease my supply. It's just according to the same level of intensity that I have, I'm pouring out upon you. So when God is pouring out and giving, in other words, Paul's saying, I, I'm pleading, I, I'm asking according to that which he is, according to the riches of his glory, that he's going to give you something. He's not going to give it to you and suddenly he goes, oh no, I now have less. Because his abundance is so great, he's giving it according to his abundance. It's just the outflow of his abundance, but it never decreases his abundance. Does that make any sense to you? So, so you got to understand that what Paul's praying is that according to this level, according to the standard, according to just the overwhelming reality of who God is and what he has, that he's going to give you these things, which I just think is awesome. That he's just, that we can pray according to his nature, and yet his nature is not going to change. That we can pray according to his riches, and yet his riches will never diminish. Uh, the word riches in our passage is plutos. Uh, it means wealth or riches, as you would probably understand wealth or riches. And what's interesting, though, is that the way that this word is used most often in Scripture is it's not about uh, the bank account stuff. That this word that Paul is using here, uh, I think it's used 22 times in the New Testament. All but three of them are used in the sense of Jesus. Three of them are used in the sense of monetary riches and wealth, and it's always in the parable of the sower. Uh, isn't it interesting how often we in the world are just consumed with finances? I mean, we are just, we are wrapped up in this idea of success and money and prosperity and bank accounts and, you know, the, the chink in our pockets and, you know, and that, that kind of stuff. And it's interesting that when you focus your life in that direction, you miss it. I mean, you might have the temporary wealth and you might have the pleasures that, that may be associated with that, but do you realize you miss that which is truly rich? And I'm not saying that money's bad, because money's not bad. If you have money, I'll, I'll take it from you if you, want, if you want to. But it's not that money's evil. It's just it is that pursuit of wealth. It's, it's building your life around that that causes chaos in your life. You need money to function. Because at some point, you're going to have to buy food. We appreciate you buying clothing. <laughs> because we don't want a lot of Isaiah's walking around. You know, that's not why he didn't buy clothing, <laughs> but we, we, we want you to wear clothing. Uh, hey, 
at least, or at least around here, when we get to winter time, it's going to get cold. You need some housing. Guess what all that takes? Yeah, it takes some resource. So we're not against the resource. God's not against the money. He will supply that which he has called us to. But the focus of our life is not the money. Do you see the difference? Money should be a tool. You are a vessel that stewards the resource that God has given you. But even the resource that he has given you is not even yours. It's his. He doesn't get 10%, folks. He gets it all. It's his. You're merely to steward it. But isn't it amazing how, how focused as a culture, even as a Christian culture, we are in the pursuit of riches? Uh, let me just give you two of the times where this shows up in the parable of the sower, this word riches. Because the way that Jesus talks about this word in the, in the normal sense of culture is, is rather scary to me. Uh, you know the parable of the sower. Uh, this man goes out and sows some seed. And of course, some of the seed falls on the ground. And, and listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 13, 22. He says, and, <clears throat> and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word and he is not un, he's not fruitful. Do you realize that there is a deceitfulness that comes with wealth? That there's an allurement to having all the riches and the money and the success, and it, it looks really nice. Doesn't it? I mean, you look at Elon Musk, and it's like, oh, you know, if he would just tithe, it would be a very happy church. Okay, maybe Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. I mean, I don't know who, whoever's in your mind when it comes to money. Do you realize, I mean, do you know, do you know how nice, do you know what you could do for the kingdom of God with that kind of resource? <laughs> be awesome. But you know what happens when you start to focus your mind that direction? It chokes you. And it literally chokes the word out of you and you won't be fruitful. Uh, in, the same, <clears throat> in the same parable in Mark 14, 19, it says that the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. See, there's a, there's a, there's a scary reality when your focus is the riches. But do you realize that true riches is not found in riches? True riches biblically is found in one place. You want to guess what it is? Jesus. In fact, listen to this. I, I love the play on words in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Paul's telling Timothy about this idea of, of riches. Now listen to how he plays on the words. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on, on the uncertainty of riches. So he says, hey, go out there. And those who are wealthy, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. We need wealthy people. Missionaries love wealthy people. Why? Because someone, I mean, someone has to pay for mission stuff. And if God blesses, and there's people that God blesses, I'm just immensely with financial resource. And it is a blessing to, to live that as long as you are stewarding that money well. And CT stud, there's nothing wrong being incredibly wealthy, but he was funneling that money all over the place. Uh, I, I know some businessmen that God has so richly blessed, and they said, uh, and, I, and I've heard their attention. They're like, we want to go on the mission field. We, we want to do these things. But yet God has so richly blessed us with the ability to create wealth. They're like, actually, I think that's my ministry. And so as, as the money keeps increasing, 
We don't increase our standard of living. We just keep giving, we keep giving more. And that has become a blessing to the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great ministry. And if you have that ministry, come talk to me. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not really. But, uh, but if you have that ministry, run with that. That's beautiful. I, I, think, that, I think it's a God-given thing. But listen to what Paul again says. He says, instruct, the, instruct those who are rich in this present world, don't be conceited or fix your hope on that uncertainty of riches. Because there is, there's an uncertainty of the riches. But how are you, where, are you to, where are you to fix your hope? Paul says, fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And there's this really fun play on words. Don't get wrapped up in the material stuff. There's nothing wrong with it, but that should not be your focus. Why? Because the one to whom richly supplies us with all things, that is where our hope lies. Uh, Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And by the way, just as a reminder, he will supply all your needs. The word all in Greek means all. Isn't that neat? He will supply. Whatever he calls you to, he will supply. According to his riches in glory. It's the same phrase he uses in our passage. Uh, that word glory, <clears throat> again back in verse 16, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory. The word there, glory, is really interesting. Uh, it's the Greek word doxa. Uh, and, and it's probably what you're thinking of. When you think glory, a lot of times you think of like brightness or shining. That's one way to understand it. Uh, it has this idea of splendor or radiance or greatness or magnificence. Uh, in other words, uh, it's like something catches the eye. Something is great over the top. It's amazing. It's transcendent, right? There's this idea of honor associated with it. Uh, so, you know, someone does something really well and, oh, what do we do? We give them honor. We give them glory. So there, there's that idea associated in, in this idea of, of glory. Uh, sometimes that word glory is used in the sense of perspective. Uh, it's an understanding kind of a thing. Uh, that when, when Satan takes Jesus up onto the high mountain and shows him the glory of his kingdoms, uh, it's not just the woo. Uh, there's an there's a undercurrent even in that passage of the, of the temptations that Satan is giving Jesus his perspective on those kingdoms. Not just, look how great and shining they are. It's like, whoo, aren't these great? Let me show you my perspective on these things. So sometimes there's this idea of perspective associated with this idea of glory. But what I really like, especially in the context of our passage, is that there's this, uh, oftentimes there's this idea of power associated with the idea of glory. Uh, for example, uh, or it could be synonymous with power is what I mean. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 11. Uh, in Colossians 1, 11, Paul says that we pray that you would be invigorated and strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory, according to the, according to the power. So he's, he's correlating this idea that, hey, that you would be strengthened with power according to his glory. Isn't that interesting? And so again, there's this, there's this tie-in with glory and power. And so it's interesting as you look at our passage then, in verse 16, Paul is praying, and what is he praying according to? What is he praying for? God, according to your rich glory, according to your rich power, 
according to the overwhelming reality of who you are. That's who I'm praying to. Does that make any sense? So I want to ask you this morning three questions about your prayer life. Uh, as we're looking and we're just kind of doing this overview before we even get into the content of Paul's prayer. And Paul, again, he's, he's bowing his knees before the Father. He says, I'm praying all of this, the content, the content I'm about to give, all of that content is according to the riches of his glory. So I want to ask you three questions about your prayer life. You ready for these? Number one, do you know to whom you pray? Now, I, I, know, I know you're like, duh, I pray to God. But I've heard you pray. Not all of you, but I've, I've heard a lot of you pray. And I, I've, I wonder, I wonder if we as a Christian culture have actually missed and somehow have forgotten to whom we pray. Isn't it interesting how we approach God in prayer at times? Uh, we have some need, we have some burden, we have some temptation, we have some concern, and we go up to God and we say, God, I'm not so sure if you can handle it, but here's my problem. Isn't that what we do? God, I'm in the middle of this temptation. I don't know. Is there anything you can do about this? And I know we know who we pray to, but I actually don't think we know who we pray to. Because if we actually knew whom we are praying to, why would you have any doubt? Why, why would you sit there and go, God, is this possible? I don't know if you can do this. Do you realize whom we're praying to? We are praying. We have the privilege that we have bold, confident access to enter the throne room of grace of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we are praying to the creator of the universe. Do you realize the one to whom we pray, as we heard the other day, was or is the Lord of hosts? That, that he is the commander of the, of, the, of the angel armies. And if one angel, isn't this a crazy thought? One angel is strong enough to kill 185,000 Assyrians. That's one angel. One angel comes into Egypt and just firstborns. That's just one angel. And God says, I am, I am the Lord of hosts. I am the, I am the commander of angel armies. Armies. Not even one army. And you realize to be an army, you got to have at least more than one angel. <laughs> so if one angel has enough power, whoa. You know, to just 185,000 Assyrians, to just the Egyptian firstborns, and he has a whole army of these angels. Why are you concerned? Well, I don't, I don't know if he can handle my problems. What are you talking about? I, I love, and I've gone through this so many times, so we're not going to dive into it deep here, but in a Second Samuel chapter 5, David was just crowned king over all of Israel. And of course, the Philistines, who were the bitter enemies of Israel, come and they encamp themselves in the Valley of the Rephaim, which is the Valley of Giants. And so David goes out to, to, fight, the, to fight the Philistines. And but before, before David gets there, he goes to God and says, God, do you want me to fight the Philistines? 
And I love what God says. God looks at David and says, David, I will doubtlessly deliver them into your hand. Now, when you look at the Hebrew, and again, if you want to study this out, I've, I've given this several times, uh, called Bel, Baal Perazim or Bel Perazim. Uh, so you, could, you can go back and listen to any of those. But when you look at that idea, I will doubtlessly deliver them into your hands. When you look at the Hebrew, it is a strong, strong emphasis. In fact, it's, it's actually one of my favorite Hebrew words. Uh, it's the verb form of the word Nathan. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great Hebrew word. Uh, but in, in the passage, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of oomph behind the word. And, and there, there's like this confidence behind the word. And, and when I've studied it or when I've talked about it in the past, there's these three ideas. There's these three thrusts behind that word. And what, what God is doing is looking at David and saying, without a doubt, I promise you, I will deliver them into your hands. That you can be confident. You don't have to worry. It is a done thing. Now, could you imagine you are about to fight the Philistines and God says, I promise you, I promise you without a single doubt, I will give them into your hands. How would you go into battle? Would you sit there and be timid and, and passive and you shake your little sword going, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. What are you talking about? God has promised you. And if God has promised, he cannot lie. So how would you march in a battle? I, I, I've said this so many times. If God looked at me and says, Nathan, I doubtlessly deliver them into your hands. I, if I was David, I would have looked at my troops and just said, take the day off. I'm serious. Hey, just sit this one out. Just watch. I will go down there and I will fight them. Because as my best friend Jonathan proved, you can, God, God can save by many or with few. And if God has promised without a doubt to bring the deliverance, let's see what he does. But there's just one guy. I mean, I would, have, I would have proved this thing out, wouldn't you? Why? Because the God of the universe has guaranteed success. So I would march in with confidence. Do you realize that God did such a mighty breakthrough in that battle that David renamed that location? It used to be called the Valley of the Rephaim, and he changed the name to Baal Perazim, which means master of breakthroughs. And he says, you know what God did? God broke through, this is what 2 Samuel 5 says, that God broke through as a breaking through of water, therefore he renamed the place the breakthrough, the master of breakthroughs. The Lord, our God, to whom we pray, is the master of breakthroughs. He doesn't just break through. He's the master of breakthroughs. I lock my keys in the car. I call a locksmith. Because any locksmith can get my keys out of my car. I need to get into a safe, legally, and I forgot the combination. I, I do not call a locksmith. Why? Because a locksmith can get my keys out of the car, but a good locksmith probably cannot get me into a safe. So who do I call? I call a master locksmith. And what does the master locksmith mean? It means there's nothing he can't get into, which is scary. <laughs> do you realize that there is no situation and no problem and no concern and no temptation and no trial 
that God can't break through? He doesn't just break through. He's the master of breaking through. In fact, as you walk through Scripture, isn't it fascinating how many times God will purposely set the deck against himself? It's like he will allow things to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And you're like, this is impossible. And God goes, I know. Because he loves the impossible. Because that means we get no credit for this. The Red Sea. This was an impossible situation. Gideon. Let's, hey, let's shrink your army down to 300 people. Do you realize that over, hey, here's Abraham and Sarah who are now a little beyond childbearing years. These are all impossible situations. And God says, I love impossible situations. Why? Because I'm the master of breakthroughs. Do you realize to whom you are praying? You are praying to the God of the universe. You are praying to the one in whom all power resides. You are praying to the one that holds the universe in the palm of his hand. You are praying to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So why are we so timid and passive in our praying? Oh God, I've got a big problem. And I don't know if you can handle this one. Why do we pray that way? Because we actually don't know to whom we're praying. How would that change your prayer life if you began to realize to whom you actually prayed? That, that he's not bullied and pushed around by your problems or your temptations or, or your whatever. That, that he is more than able. In fact, I'm so excited to get to the end of this study. Because down in verse 20 of verse 30. Sorry, 20 verse 30. That makes no sense. Verse 20 of chapter 3. I wonder where that came from. But when we get down to verse 20, which is coming. You may not think we're going to get there. But we're going to get there. Let me read you this passage. This is so powerful. I love this passage. And when we get into it, it opens up. And I mean, it's one of my favorite passages in Ephesians. Ephesians 3.20. Listen to this. Now to him who is able. Well, what is he able to do? Oh, far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. Do you realize that there is nothing our God cannot do? in the sense of dealing with your issues, your problems, your temptations, your struggles, your family, your finances, or your whatever. So do you know to whom you are praying? Do you actually know that when you pray, you are praying to the one who is able? Let me give you a few verses. Just listen. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. Jeremiah 10 says, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens when he utters his voice, there is a tollment of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the, from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Wow. That is to whom we are praying, folks. I love this. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh, listen to what this says. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah says, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, 
You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. By the way, do you, do you, do you know what the word nothing in Hebrew means? It means nothing. Nothing is too difficult for you, O Lord. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5 says, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Are you getting this? What would it look like if we understood and knew the one to whom we prayed? I think that would change how we prayed. Uh, number two, the second question I want to ask you about your prayer life is not just do you know to whom you pray, but secondly, do you know the limit for prayer? In other words, I think for some of us, we, we have this weird conception that there's, a, there's an amount of what God can accomplish. Uh, whether it's the number of times that he's willing to forgive, uh, whether it's how many times we can ask for the same thing, uh, whether it is whatever it may be. We, we, for whatever reason, when you listen to people pray, it's like God has this limit, and when you cross the limit, he's like, I'm done with you, finally. Quit asking. But do you know to whom you pray? He is infinite. He is almighty. And you got to understand that the limit of your prayers is only limited by the one to whom you are praying. And if he is unlimited, if he is infinite, then there's no limit to the prayer. How great of a prayer can you pray? How many times can you pray a prayer? There's no limit. Why? Because the one to whom you pray, there's no limits. So what if you would have a few audacious prayers? You know what? You know, you know what? Do you know what an audacious prayer is? An audacious prayer is it is so ridiculous and so insane that it is overwhelmingly impossible. And yet you're still praying for it. For example, could you imagine praying, Oh Lord, would you do such a movement in your world that there's not a single abortion ever again? That we have sacrificed enough gods to the gods of Moloch. And by the way, when you say the Old Testament gods of Moloch and how they did the child sacrifice, it's the exact same stuff that we're doing in abortion. And so, Lord, I am praying that you so turn the hearts and the laws of this nation and the world that there never again is a child sacrifice. You're like, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. That's why it's audacious. Lord, I want human trafficking to stop. That is not according to your nature. You are dead set against that biblically. So, Lord, I'm going to stand in agreement with your word and say it's done. So, Lord, stop it. Cause the enemy to be halted in the area of human trafficking. You're like, yeah, but Nathan, have you, have you not looked at human trafficking? Have you not studied it? Yes, I have. And this is impossible. I know. So why not pray it? Because do, do you not know to whom you are praying? 
Because if you begin to realize that the one to whom you're praying is unlimited and he is almighty, then can't our prayers be that way? So what is the limit to your praying? How big of prayers can you pray? How many times can you pray a prayer? God, could you give me my daily bread today? He's like, you know, you've, you've prayed that now for, for 2,000 days. That's the limit. Yeah, you know, after about, you know, four or five years, we, we stopped. I, I stopped doing that one. What are you talking about? Do you, do you realize that there is no limits? That he delights in this stuff. Does that make any sense to you? Don't you think that should change how we pray then? Don't, don't you think we should be praying bigger prayers? Don't, don't you think we should be leaning in, groaning in travail and intercession? All the more? Why? Because there's no limit to this stuff. Well, I, I've, and, and, you could, and you could do this in terms of the size of the prayer, right? The greatness. Uh, you can do this for the amount of times you pray for something at the same time. Hey, this could be, how many times do you have to pull on the rope of prayer before God answers? Lord Bob needs salvation. Would, would you awaken him? Uh, there's this great story of George Mueller who was praying for this guy. And if I remember correctly, he prayed for this man over 40 years, 50 years, something like that. And when George Mueller died, the man had still not come to Christ. But at the funeral of George Mueller, the man's heart was strangely warmed, and he started to follow Jesus. So after 20, 30 years of praying for someone's salvation, is that the limit of how many times you should pray and, God, and you just conclude, maybe, maybe, God's not, maybe God's not in that one? Why would you? God desires that all, all men might be saved. So why don't you just keep on praying? Do you realize there's been a prayer that's been being prayed for 2,000 years and still has not been answered? Because the Spirit and the bride have been praying, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. And he still hasn't answered that one. So do we stop praying? Because we, we're past the limit? Do you not know to whom you are praying? And do you understand that there's no limit to prayer? So why don't we pray audacious, long-suffering, endless prayers? He delights in hearing them, folks. Uh, third question for your prayer life. Do you know what the focus and answer of every prayer ultimately comes back to? When you pray, uh, it's interesting. Every prayer we pray, I understand we pray a whole bunch of different kinds of prayers. We pray for a whole bunch of different kinds of things. But do you realize biblically that every prayer ultimately comes and finds its end in one place? Uh, when we were looking at the first prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, it's interesting as you walk through the prayer, uh, which starts in verse 15 and goes down to verse 19, Every aspect of that prayer, he's praying for the exact same thing. He says it in different ways, but he ultimately prays for the same thing. Uh, as you get into our prayer here in chapter 3, and as, as we get into in the next session, as we start walking through the content, you're going no, to notice that he's going to be praying for a variety of different things, but the prayer focuses on one single thing. Do you know what the prayer focuses on? 
Jesus. Do you recognize that Jesus is the fruition and the focus of every single prayer that you pray? Lord, I need peace. Do you know what God's going to give you? Jesus, who is your peace. God, I really need some joy. Do you know what he's going to give you? Jesus. And Psalm 1611 says, in him is the fullness of joy. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, everything you need, everything. You know what the word everything in Greek means? So everything you need for life and godliness. And can you think of one single thing that you need outside of life and godliness? No, I can't either. So everything you need for life and godliness is found in one place, says Peter. It's in Jesus. Which means when you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. I, I, I really need focus today. Then what you need is Jesus in your life. Lord, I need to be more productive today. Do you know what you really need? You need more Jesus in your life today. Lord, I need to love my neighbor. Because those roommates in the suite next to me, they... Whew, Jesus. Do you know what you need? You need Jesus in your life today. Lord, I'm, I'm facing this intense temptation. Do you know what you need? You need more of Jesus in your life today. Do you realize that Jesus is the answer to every prayer? Name one prayer that, that Jesus is not the answer of. The orphan crisis. Lord, will you get involved in the orphan crisis? Do you know what the answer to that actually is? Jesus. Do you know how this world is going to be fixed and stop human trafficking? Jesus. Did you know how the abortion industry and, and all the abortion stuff is going to end around the world? Jesus. Are you getting this? Name one single thing that you can pray for that's not answered in Jesus. Because everything you need is found in him. It, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, that in Jesus, think about this, in Jesus, this is one of the blessings, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. Do you realize that his nature is lavish? Just to dump it. The idea is actually like a Niagara waterfall. How you take a little cup and you go to a faucet. Take the same cup, go to Niagara Falls. And just try to hold the cup. <laughs> Do you realize the intensity of the falls at Niagara Falls is so much that you would not, well, you wouldn't be able to stand there, but you would not be able to put the cup in. Why? Because it is so lavished upon you. It's just going to just explode over it. Do you realize that's how Jesus gives you himself? He doesn't give you a trickle. He lavishes his grace upon you. He lavishes his wisdom upon you. He just lavishes his love upon you. He just lavishes his life upon you. He just loves to lavish. Hello? Isn't that amazing? Uh, Galatians chapter 5. 
Verses 22 to 23, you know it well. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's no limit to those things. And where does every single one of the fruits of the Spirit find its fulfillment? Jesus. Because these are the fruits of the Spirit. So when I have the Spirit residing in me, the Spirit of Jesus, guess what, gets, what, what begins to happen? Fruit's going to come out of my life. How big can the fruit grow? There's no limit to that. See, no one will, no one will walk up to you and say, will you, will you stop being loving? Will you hate me? <laughs> See, no one says that kind of thing. No one will say, hey, could you turn, tune down, to, just tone this thing down and quit being joyful? I have heard that one. But, you know, like, <laughs> hey, w- would, you, would you stop being patient with me and just be angry once in a while? See, no one says those things. Why? Because there's no law, there's no limit to this stuff in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Uh, several studies ago, back in Ephesians 3.8, uh, I was looking at this idea of the unfathomable riches that we have in Christ and the fact that he is the richness. And uh, I, I gave an entire list of the benefits that we have in Jesus. And most of you weren't there when, when we walked through, through it. So I, I want to give you this little list. And if, if you want the list, I can give it to you. Uh, or I'll have it online or whatever. But uh, there's verses associated with every single one of these. I won't, I won't read the verses. I just, I'll just give you my list. Uh, this is not a complete list. This was, just, this was just like a quick, I was just trying to jot a few ideas down of the things that we have in Jesus. So when we're talking about the fact that he's the fulfillment and the fruition of all prayer, do you realize, just start listening to this list of what we have in Jesus. You ready for this? Oh, so good. I, before I get to that, think about this. We're talking in verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. Paul is praying that according to the fullness and the richness of who you are and your nature, Lord, I'm petitioning on that behalf. So think about of the heavenly storehouse that you have in Christ. You have this massive room. And everything in it is available to you in Jesus. You want love? It's in the room. You want joy? It's in the room. You need refuge? It's in the room. Everything that you need for life and godliness is in this heavenly treasure house called in Christ. And all of this is in him. Here's the question. If you could go in and take as much as you wanted, how much would you take? Let me ask a different question. I've used this illustration in, in previous studies in Ephesians. But ima- imagine in this back room over here, uh, I have it piled high. This is not true. So don't go check. But um, imagine we have it piled high from floor to ceiling with $100 bills. And I said, hey, you could go in there and take as much as you want, but you only get one chance. How many of you would walk in and go, "Hmm, that's sufficient? (laughs) Not a single one of you. I can see it in your eyes. (laughs) You're like, I'm really spiritual, but I'm taking more than one. You know you would. If, if it was given, if you had full permission and you only had one chance to take as much as you want, what would you do? I would be stuffing my pockets. I would be holding up my shirt. I would sew pockets. I would shove it. I mean, I would, I would hold as much as I could. If I only had one chance to take as much as I wanted. Why don't we do that with Jesus? He, he, 
He's opened himself up to you. He's lavishing himself upon you. And yet we are content with so little. It's like we are paupers in heaven. That is not to be. One, we have unlimited access. And everything you need for life and godliness is found in him. So why would we be content with such, with such little? So with that idea, let me give you a list of what's in, the, what's in the storehouse. Think about what's available to you. Oh, this is awesome. So in Christ, we're talking about Jesus. All of this is available to you. And again, if you want the scripture references, I can get, to those, get, get those to you later. He's our love. He's our truth. He's our life. By the way, you're not going to have time to write these down, so just listen. Uh, he, because <clears throat> there's a long list. This is awesome. He is love. He's our love. He's our truth. He's our life. He's our atonement. He's our salvation. He's our propitiation. He's our redemption. He purges our conscience. He is our peace. He's our reconciliation. He's our righteousness. He overcomes and destroys death and the devil. He's our sanctification. He is our healer. He's our boldness and courage. He is our dwelling. He is our advocate. He is our wisdom. He is our triumph. He is our holiness and purity. He's our blessing. He's our inheritance, our joy. He's our goal, our aim, our race, and our prize. He's our author and perfecter of our faith. He's our perfection. He's our clothing. He's our rock, our fortress, our shield, our protector, and our high tower. He's our foundation and our cornerstone. He's our head and our authority. He's our holy calling. He's our promise. He's our circumcision. He's our love. He's a lover of our soul. He's our altar, our sacrifice, and our high priest. He's the upholder of all things. He's our shepherd. He's our daily manna. He's our light. He's our strength. He's our forerunner and first fruits. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our gift. He's our leader, commander, ruler, and governor. He's our deliverer. He's our judge. He's our portion, our maker, our bridegroom, and our husband. He's our well-beloved. He's our hope. He's our brother. He's our helper. He's our refiner. He's our example. He's our teacher. He's our keeper. He's our restorer. He's our resting place. He's our king. He's our Christ, our Messiah. He's our Lord. He's our all in all. He is our Jesus. Now, I am convinced that is not a comprehensive list. That's just what came to my mind in verses I could quickly find. Do you realize what we have in him? And that everything you pray for ultimately finds its fruition in him? Think about this. Paul is praying. And he says, I'm bowing my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that according to his nature, according to his power, according to his ability, I, I'm asking for these things. Can I ask you, do you know to whom you pray? The reason why Paul is about to get into some audacious requests I mean, you read through this prayer and you're like, did you listen to this one in verse 19? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God? That you would know the height, the length, the width, the depth of love? Is that even possible? No. How on earth are you going to be filled with the fullness of God this side of eternity? How on earth are you going to comprehend the overwhelming reality of love, of his love? I don't know. But the reason Paul can make such an audacious request is because he's no, he knows there's no limit to the prayers. 
because he knows to whom he prays. Can I ask you in your prayer life, do you know to whom you pray? Do you realize that when you pray, you are praying to God Almighty in whom is all glory and might and power and dominion? Did you, do you recognize that there is no limit, no limit of what God can do through prayer? He just wants someone to be praying? Do you realize that the focus and the answer ultimately of every prayer finds its fruition, its fulfillment in Jesus? What if we would pray from such a position? Not, not in accordance with us or with what we have done, but what if we would pray according to the riches of his glory? I think that would change our prayer lives. In fact, I actually think that would turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I don't want to just, I don't want to go through the motions of prayer. I don't want to just nod my head and be like, all right, I, I need to pray before my meals and pray before I fall asleep. And, and maybe if I'm really spiritual, find one other time to pray. Lord, could you somehow impress upon me through your spirit the one to whom I'm praying? Lord, I know I'm praying to you, but Lord, I want to be so acquainted with your heart and with your nature and your very life that when I come to you in prayer, I know that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I could ever ask or imagine. Lord, I, I want to understand that when I pray, I am praying to the creator of the universe the commander of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, the master of breakthroughs, the one in whom holds all power and dominion and might, that you hold the entire universe in the palm of your hands and yet you know the number of hairs on our heads. Lord, I want to know that you are able, not just in theory, but in reality. Lord, could you somehow impress upon us that, that there is no limit to what you can do through prayer and what you're looking for is an intercessor. You're looking for someone to stand in the gap. Your, your eyes are going to and fro on this, on this earth trying to see who, who weeps and groans and is willing to stand on behalf of those who are weak. Lord, may you find men and women who are prayers in this room of those who are listening Lord, can we somehow realize that, that audacious, bold prayers do not intimidate you? In fact, you delight in the impossibilities. In fact, if things aren't impossible, sometimes you, you force things to become more impossible just so that when you move, you get all the glory. Lord, would you not let us grow weary in our praying? We, we, even if it takes 40, 50 years of praying for the exact same thing, Lord, there's no limit. There's, there's not an end point of, of when you stop listening, but that you are working all things according to your exact timing, and we can trust you. And Lord, could, somehow could you just remind us that ultimately every prayer finds its answer in you, that what I really need more than peace is I need Jesus. What I need even more than joy is I need Jesus. 
And so, Lord, while, while it's not a diminishment of praying for the other things, truly what I'm saying, Jesus, is I want to lift you up. And I want to make you center in my life because I'm convinced if you would just be center and the forefront and preeminent in my life, that would probably solve most of my prayers. <laughs> so, Lord, would you let us see that you really are our all in all and everything we need for life and godliness finds its place in you. So, Lord, I just dec declare and cry out this morning that I need you. I don't want something from you. I just want you. And will you just be all things that I need? And Lord, I pray that as we move forward in our lives in these coming days and weeks, that you would, would you shift how we pray? Would you not let us pray weak, anemic, passive prayers, uncertain as to the one to whom we are praying? But Lord, I pray that we'd realize that we have access, bold, confident access into the very throne room of your kingdom. And we can pray as a son talks to his father. Oh, Jesus, would you change our lives? Would you change our prayer lives? And would you change this world? And would you make us men and women of prayer? Love you. It's your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.